And when we're getting things straight, I want to make sure it's clear to everybody, I don't hate Christmas, all right? I've gotten a few kind of hate mails this week, you know, the Scrooge of the pulpit and those kinds of things. I don't hate Christmas, all right? Now, it is difficult, as I confessed last year, after preaching through the Easter story year after year for almost a quarter of a century, and for many of you having heard it for a lot longer than that, sometimes it's hard to make a story that's incredibly familiar, engaging, or interesting. And so I've struggled with that, and I was confessional about that last week, but that doesn't mean I hate Christmas. I actually love Christmas. Because one of my gift-giving languages is giving gifts, so it flows right together very well this time of year. But the Lord has kind of given me a fresh angle on Christmas this year, if you will, an approach to it that I've never done before, so I'm a little engaged, so I have an opportunity this morning to, to share some thoughts with you, and let me start those around this kind of a concept. Why did Christmas need to happen? Why, why did Christmas happen? Why is it that God, this eternal, non-created, always existing being of the universe, chose to create this unique, singular, one-of-a-kind embryo and planted in the womb of a virgin by the name of Mary, for this, for this embryo, which is fully human and fully divine, to go through all of this natural biological development with inside of Mary, and at the appointed time to be forced down the birth canal, out into the real world, and to grow up in many ways, maybe in all ways, just like us. First an infant, then a preschooler, then a young child, and then an older child, and an adolescent, and right on up into adulthood. Why did all that need to happen? It'd be interesting to pause and to pick your brains about that. Why, why do you think all that needed to happen? But we don't really have time for that. But I do want to try to answer this question from this perspective. Why did Jesus think it needed to happen? You know, the Gospels are riddled with the statements of this. This is why I have come. It's out of the words of, out of the mouth of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, like, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Do you know, in one place he said, I have come not to bring peace, but the sword. It's interesting. When you think about this unique embryo implanted in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the reason it came was not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. There are many of those type statements in the Gospels coming out of the mouth of Jesus as he explains from his own perspective as to why he had to come into our world. Between this week and next week and Christmas Eve, we don't have time to look at all of those. Maybe we'll leave some of those for another year. But I do want to look at several of them this year. And I want to start today with Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. And I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 20 with me. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find our text today on page 833. Literally the exact same words are recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, the 45th verse, in the same context as we're going to see it here in Matthew chapter 20. Again, this is what Jesus has to say about Christmas, why he had to come. Let me read verse 28 for us, and then I'll back up and walk us through some context, beginning from the 17th verse. 
I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible this morning. If you have a different translation, you, you may note that your words are just a little different, but the meaning is the same throughout all of the different translations. Jesus, as he concluded his teaching of the disciples, said, Just as the Son of Man, a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If you were to sit down and be having a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or a cup of hot chocolate, whatever suits your fancy, and you were sitting down with Jesus and, you'd, and you said to him, well, why'd you have to be born in the first place? One of the things he would say to you is, I was born, I have come. Not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Let's look at this just a little bit in context. And, and I think it really helps to understand where this is in the timeline of Jesus Christ. It's life. If you were to look out the windshield of what was about ready to happen to Jesus, the day after this teaching is a triumphal entry. Two days from this point is the cleansing of the temple. Four days from this point, he's having the very first Lord's Supper experience with his disciples. Five days out, he's being crucified. So he's at the very end of his journey with the disciples. He wants to make sure that they understand who he is, what's happening, and why. And so in the 17th verse of chapter 20, as they're making their way along with the rest of the throng towards Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover, it says, while they were going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be resurrected on the third day. This is the clearest teaching of Jesus about the nature of the final aspect of his ministry to the disciples, that of giving his life for them. This is the clearest teaching he's going to give, but they don't get it. You pick up with verse 20. While they're still on the journey, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on the other on your left, in your kingdom. Those were the positions of power. The right hand and the left. We, we might think of like, you know, the, the vice president and the chief of staff or the, you know, the chief of staff and the speaker of the house, whatever. Very influential positions. And, and here you see a mother always looking out for her sons, you know. I mean, so, and, and she probably had lots of reasons why she thought that they should have those positions. They were, as far as we can tell from what we can piece together about who they were, they were probably the best bred of all the disciples. You know, their family was kind of connected socially and politically in the city. And so they probably had the best education. They understand how things worked better than the rest of the disciples. And so she would have very naturally thought. So she comes to Jesus, and it's very dramatic. She gets down on her hands. Please, you know, get me. The guy, the really dramatic kind of request. And Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup? 
that I'm about to drink. That reference to cup there is certainly a reference to the cup that he's going to offer on the Lord's Supper experience. But it's, it's really his way of saying, are you ready to give up all claims to yourself, even your right to live, for the sake of the mission of God? And their response is, we are able. He told him, he says, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and to my left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Every time I read this passage, this is the imagery that comes to mind. You know, I got two boys, Joshua and Benjamin. I imagine myself lying on my deathbed, right? Struggling for breath, you know? And there are ones on the right, ones on the left. And they start arguing like, well, I want the Jeep. Well, I want the house, you know, and I want the boat, you know, and I got, you know, and, you know, you, <gasps> no, I want the Jeep. You know, this is exactly the kind of the, the imagery that's going on. Jesus is pouring out his heart to his disciples. He says, I got, I got a week left, guys. I'm terminal. Well, I want the best job. Will you make sure I get the best job before, you know, and they're arguing back and forth between each other. This is what's going on among them. And this is the future of the kingdom. Holy cow. Anyways. Verse 25, but Jesus called them over. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them. And the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. As Jesus entered into the final week of His earthly life, and He looked back on His birth, He understood the reason why He had come was to model a new way of living for you and I. It's a life of service. You know, we use, like to use this phrase of, you know, that, that you know, Christmas is the season for giving. But in reality, Christmas is the reason to always be serving. I mean, Jesus, he, he could have done, he could have taken control of the world the way the world would have done it. He could have, what's the terminology here? They would have, the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and they, in the high position, exercise power over them. He could have done all of that. He could have called down an, a legion of angels from heaven taking control of the whole world. The disciples in many ways expected him to throw off the Roman domination of Israel, to raise the nation up to its previous glory, to take control of the whole region, and to have this power over all. He said, but that's not why I came. I came to do life a different way. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. That's a huge change. But it is part of the message, the impact that Christmas is supposed to have on us. That our lives are supposed to be about service. This is about changing the scorecard about the way we do life. You know, for many of us, it's 
you know, listen, we looked at him, you know, we're more impressed with a guy with the guy who walks up who's who's the the major instead of the private, right? Rank. Rank has its privileges, right? Well, we want to have a rank to go with it. Titles are great. You know, we want to have this position, you know, of, of, of influence. We, it's, it's the issue of how many people are below you is what's matter. That's the scorecard. When the scorecard really should be how many people are above you that you get a chance to serve. You know, th- this, this is actually the same when, when you look at the church. You know, in all my years of pastoring churches, I've been asked over and over and over again, well, well what's your attendance like? How many people do you have on a Sunday morning? Never once has anybody ever asked me, what's your capacity of your church to send out missionaries? Never been asked that question ever. It's a whole different scorecard, isn't it? It's, it's a... And, and, and I'm not even sure I can communicate the, tra- the change that goes on in that. It, it, I mean, we think about what's the phrase I got for you in your, your sermon outlines. You know, you, you have this idea of of, you know, we, we should make no mistake about it. If, the, if the, the difficulty the disciples had in grasping what this meant is the same kind of difficulty we're going to have. You know, we, this is a total shift in the way we do life. You know, it's a shift in what one commentator I, I read this week talked about. It's a shift in our bucket theology. And what he meant by is in... Most of us operate with a bucket theology just like Pilate's. Remember Pilate, who got to be the judge in Jesus' trial? What did he do at the end of that trial? He got out a bucket of water. And he stuck his hands in it. And he washed his hands saying, I'm not responsible. And many of us try to live our lives with this bucket theology of we're getting out a bucket of water saying, I'm not responsible to do anything about that. I'm not responsible to serve. But if we're going to get the bucket theology of Christ on the last night of His life, just before He served the Lord's Supper, He got up from the table, took off His clothes, put a towel around, He picked up a bucket of water. And He got down on His knees in the role of a slave. And washed the feet of every single one of his disciples, including Judas. Which bucket theology are we living our lives by? It's a huge transformation. And that's what Christmas, that's what Jesus came. He came to model that way of life for you and I to live it out. And, and, and I don't know if we really get it because there's so many ways for us to adopt a lot of the servant scorecard and still do it from a perspective of self. I've taught the preschoolers for 15 years in a row and only missed one Sunday. You know, and, and, and we, we, all this kind of pride stuff that can go with it. And, and I'm just kind of being facetious, but you, you get the idea that we can, we, can, we can take the scorecard and we can switch it around and say, see what a great servant I am, and it's still all about us. And that's not the issue at all. Because the part of the message of the life that Jesus modeled is that life isn't about us. It's about God. And I, I told this illustration, this story in the first service, and, and it seemed to, to communicate with folks. And so I'm going I'm to share it with you. Is, you know, I, I share this in a way of maybe getting just a little bit at the feel of how this is different. Back during the Revolutionary War, 
in the midst of the, the struggles, the commander-in-chief, George Washington, went for a ride through his troops. And he was dressed as a civilian. He went out on a, on a, kind of on a patrol, dressed as a civilian, so nobody knew who he was, including the enemy. And he came upon some of his own troops, and there was a corporal standing there over a group of men, yelling at them to finish the job of rebuilding a defense system that had gotten destroyed in the preceding battle. And George Washington pulled his horse up to a stop, and of course he wasn't in uniform, and he wasn't recognized, and he said to the corporal, he said, well, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm the corporal, so I give the orders, and they do them. So I'm giving them orders, and I'm standing here to make sure they do it right. And they were struggling to get it. And, and so Washington climbed down off of his horse. He got down in the trench with the men and helped them finish the job. And when he got out of the trench, he climbed back on his horse. And he said, Corporal, so the next time you have a job that's too much for your men, just come up to headquarters and ask for the commander-in-chief. I'll be glad to come down and give him a hand again. And with that, he rode away. And it's a, it's a fascinating story in a lot of ways, but one of the things it shows is that for George Washington, it wasn't about the title. It was about what needed to be done in order to win the battle, right? You and I somehow begin to tap into this understanding of this new life that Jesus modeled when it's really not about what job we have and how it affects us how much time it takes out of us, how much money it takes out of us, you know, what kind of commitment it did, whether we like it, it's our preference or whatever. When all those things begin to fade into the background, we simply ask the question, does it move the kingdom of God forward towards victory? That's when we're starting to get a little bit of that life. The reason why Jesus came at Christmas. But Jesus didn't come just to model a new way of life. He came to endow a new way of life. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The imagery out of this text may make a lot of us feel uncomfortable because it's the imagery of the slave market. And Jesus here describes Himself as one who walks into the slave market and He pays the price to redeem or to free the slave. In this particular case, the slave is, is all of humanity that's in, enslaved to the alienation and the consequences of sin. And whatever you may think of sin, it, it, ultimately it's simply just doing life without God. I do life without a consciousness, without any obedience, without any desire to involve God in my life. It, you don't have to be an axe murderer or somebody who steals lots of money from others. You don't even have to be a liar or a cheat. You can simply just do life ignoring God. The Scripture calls that sin. And we, we find ourselves enslaved, grasped by sin that creates this, this, this vice grip that will not release us, that creates an alienation from God. And Jesus pictures himself as the one who steps into the slave market and he pays the price, which is his very life, that frees us from that enslavement and sets us free. And, and it's, it's a marvelous impact. Do you know is after the cross, when, when people had life-changing faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, it was the first time since the Garden of Eden that people could live in relationship with God without any 
marring or scarring from sin in their lives. All those wounds had been healed. All that stuff had been removed. We could, we could actually live in relationship with God without any of that. I'm not saying that the consequences of sin that we experience in our body, in our world, that all of that was removed. But in terms of our relationship with God, we were allowed and can live in relationship. It's an incredible moment. And Jesus endowed that by the ransom that he offered up on the cross of Calvary at the far end. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful impact on our lives. It's why the Scripture describes this new life that we have in Christ as, as being born again because it's a brand new experience. Never had it before. It's why it's talked about the old has passed away and the new has come. We're brand new creatures. That we have this life in Christ because He's redeemed us from the grips of death created by sin. So Jesus came to model a new way of life. He came to endow us with new life. There's a little phrase at the very end of the text. Just the word many. And let me point to you that on the day that Jesus issued this teaching, just like today, the many hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's still more to come in. Jesus has ransomed himself up, if you will, for those who still need to respond. And, and, and with that, there's a couple of things I, I, I would challenge you. For us to somehow complete the many, some of us today need to make personal choices. Okay, and I, We have the sounds of life all around us <laughs> this morning. Just zero in for just a minute. If you don't have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have that spiritual life within you. It's there for you to have. But you know, it, it doesn't happen by osmosis. You, it's not just because your parents were believers or your grandparents or you've got a great uncle who's a bishop somewhere or whatever. That stuff doesn't... It's all about your personal choice. You don't become ransomed from the grip of slavery to sin by osmosis. It comes by personal choice. And, and there's lots of ways to describe that, but simply it's a matter, I, I think, of, of admitting the fact that you need, you need God, you need to be forgiven by God, you need to be changed by God, and as you confess that to God, you place your, your belief, your trust, your confidence, you see the solution. It's simply the ransom that Jesus has paid for you. And you commit your life to walk with it. And I want to challenge you this morning, if you've not taken that step to do so, there's a way for you to indicate on your connection card that you want to become a, a follower of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to fill that out and, and hand it to me personally before you leave here this morning. In the back of many of your chairs, we have, a, we have a kind of a colorful card that you can use. You can also fill out and say, I've, I've chosen to become a follower of Christ today. We have some special resources out there, a special Bible that has some great studies in it to help you launch this new life of faith. But, but make that personal choice this morning. That's at the individual level. At a corporate level, in order for this many to be fulfilled, the church needs to be transformed. It needs to be transformed. You know, I, I love the church. And I love this church. You know, it's the only institution, the church, it's the only institution ever created by God to change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Now, I'm not saying there aren't other organizations that do a lot of great stuff around the world, bring clean water to villages and power and medical care and food and teach. There's a lot of groups that do incredibly good stuff. There's one organization in the world, one organism that God has created to change the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the church. And I love the church. And I know that Jesus calls us to love one another. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. And in that, we're encouraged by the Scriptures to say not to, not to neglect meeting together. But i got to tell you that there are many ways in which the world is, is very justified. And it's fear. that you know, what, They say that, that folks who do not have a relationship with God, that one of their greatest fears is that they're going to go to church and not be changed. In other words, what they're saying is, when I, I know there's something missing from my life. I don't want to go to the institution that is my last hope to give me that meaning and get there and find out there are no answers. And that's one of the reasons why you and I need to be transformed personally. And, and i got to tell you, there, there are ways in which we as followers, and, and just having a family discussion now, we as followers, we can be very petty about the faith. I, I remember when I was pastoring down the South Shore, Joshua was about two years old. And I was the preacher, and Christina was the music ministry. So if one of us didn't show up on a Sunday morning because we had a sick child, it meant we either had no sermon or no music. And either one of those was very good. So we had a particular Sunday where Joshua had a little runny nose, and we took him to church. We had a couple that had been coming the better part of a year, and they had like a 14-month-old. And they saw our kid with a runny nose, and they never came back to church again and never went to another church ever. And, I, and I, you know, and I, as I wrestle with that, you know, I'm thinking, now when they get to the pearly gates, I'm using, talking here figuratively, and they're talking to Jesus, and he says, well, how'd you do with my command of not to neglect to meet together and to love one another? Said, well, you know, we went to church one time, and there was a kid there, the pastor's kid with a runny nose, and, well, we just never went back. And Jesus is going to say, well, I understand. I do the same thing. You know, you know, and it's, it's mind-boggling to me, you know? Now, listen, maybe we shouldn't have brought our child with a runny nose. But how petty can we be sometimes? You know, you come across people, well, I love the King James Version. I'm only going to go to a church that has a King James Version. And, but all the King James Version churches around here, I don't like them, so I'm not going to church anywhere. I'm sure Jesus could say, yeah, I love the King James too. You know, it only took 1,500 years after I gave the New Testament till we got to the King James, but we kind of tolerated it up to that. You know what I'm saying? You come across people, you're like, well, you know, I, you know, I showed up to church for the third time as a visitor, and the pastor didn't remember my name, so I never went back again. You know, I'm awful with names, and I'm going to be 50 next month. It's only going to get worse. You've got, you got to get over it, you know? And, and, and I'm, being, you know, I'm being somewhat trivial, but that even goes across the board with the way we serve. I've done my time. It's somebody else's turn. Now let's go on and on. And, and no one of the world fears it's going to go to church and not be changed. You know, and, and God help us if we say we really believe and celebrate in Christmas. And yet we do not live with this endowed new life. 
and with the Emmanuel in us, this God with us, in us, if He doesn't create the new life, this life of service within us, where it's all about the kingdom. So I got two questions for you this morning. Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Truly. Truly. And what are you really giving your life for right now? Let's pray as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper this morning. God, I'm grateful for the reminder today, this week to me, that Christmas isn't all about dessert, but there's a lot of meat and potatoes in there as well. There's a lot to celebrate, a lot of joy, things to shout about and to be amazed about. It creates all kinds of anticipation and hope. But God, there's, there's a lot of depth to Christmas. And Father, I pray that somehow even through this simple message today, we'd get some of that. The reason why Jesus embarked on the biological journey of being born was that he could give us new life and he could show us how to do kingdom living. Well, we've prayed often this fall for you to speak because your servant is listening. God, today we would pray, make us servants just like you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.